You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it is your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's a big day. It is. On the Co-Main Event Podcast. For the first time ever, we are live streaming our recording session for $5 and $10 level Patreon subscribers. Woo! Can you feel it? It's a revolution, Chad. uh, Viva la revolution. Just letting them behind the curtain. Yeah. They can see it all. They can see the mess of cords on the table. They can see the Christmas elf that my daughter made as a decoration some months ago, which has been up on the wall ever since. They can see the ancient Dell laptop that we use to record the Co-Main Event <laughs> podcast. Only the best for us. Which somehow soldiers through another week. Yeah. I like it. I mean, uh, it's going to take some getting used to. Going to have to remember not to just like... Make the jerk off motion while you're talking constantly. I'll have to really save that for when I can put it to its best use. Um, also, I guess people are going to see how many times we get up to go to the bathroom. I was just going to say that people podcast. are going to see how many times you go to the bathroom. You got to stay hydrated, man. It's hot out there. People are definitely finding out how the sausage is made. Uh, you know, people only have a few hours left, Ben, to buy their Dundasso oh t shirts as we record this. I think five hours left of the final sale ever of Dundasso t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com. What happened? I thought that last time I heard, nobody was buying them and therefore that this was going to be it. The good news is we shot up to 24 sold. So if you order one That's now, the good news, huh? you're definitely going to get one. They're definitely going to go into production. Uh, the bad news is this is your last chance ever to buy one. Okay. Okay. Because after this, shh, gone for good. Do you feel good about yourself? Do you like just lying to people? I feel good when the money comes. Okay. That is that is some Dundasso in practice right there. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you in part by Fulton & Rourke. Start summer off right by stockpiling a big-ass collection of Fulton & Rourke's fine aftershave cloths. They're the perfect blend of fragrance and function, individually packaged, so they go everywhere you, you go for quick and easy access with the weather getting all hot and sticky. You couldn't do a lot better than have a little pick-me-up in your gym bag or your dop kit or even your car. That's right. Formulated with rich hazel, eucalyptus, and tea tree oil, the aftershave cloths are for more than just shaving. They're the perfect way to refresh when jumping in the shower just isn't an option. Anytime, any place, a quick wipe down with one of the aftershave cloths gets you feeling 100% and back at the game. The cooling and toning formula not only feels nice on your skin, Chad, it also helps to remove dirt and oil so you can save yourself some blemishes later on. We're not making this stuff up. Fulton & Rourke Aftershave Cloths just won a Men's Health Grooming Award for 2018's Best Aftershave. And just in case you're already a fan of Fulton and Rourke's shampoo and body wash, the guys over at FNR decided it was time to go big. So they just introduced a 33-ounce version, the big honker, the big daddy. Okay, are they the calling big, it the big honker? The big, big honker? unit, you might say. I wouldn't say it. No, I'm the one who's calling it the big honker. That's uh, that's my in- intervention here, the big unit okay. from Fulton and Rourke. We should stop. Just go to FultonandRourke.com today and hook yourself up with the big unit, as always. You can save yourself 15% off your first order if you use the promo code CME. Again, that's the promo code CME at FultonAndRourke.com. 
interesting how much of your shtick on this podcast is intentionally annoying me. I find that interesting. You think that's what it is? I just think it's uh, it comes naturally to both of us. Okay. Well, that might be. Ben, we got about, what, four days left before the big uh, co-main event podcast book club when we're going to be discussing the autobiographies of Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell? Now, you mentioned to me you're kind of on a, a breakneck pace here to finish Chuck Liddell's book. It's going to be a push. It's going to be uh, a lot like I imagine Tito Ortiz getting ready for a fight. Kind oh, of a cram sesh how here many, at the end. How many pages you got left? Well, I'm reading it on my Kindle, so I don't know how many pages. What percent of the way through are you? About halfway. Oh, come on, man. I mean, but when you use the Kindle, you like you, you get to the second half, and then the percents start to go start to go faster, right? Isn't that how it works? Starts to shorten up a little bit there at the end. What? What are you even saying? Maybe it's 50% just fifty percent means you're halfway through. It's not like it's the second half is going to be shorter. That's what the half means. Maybe it's just momentum. My momentum okay. it's starting to pick you need, up. You need to pick up some momentum. It's like a snowball rolling downhill from here on out. Get a little head of steam here and get through this book. You know, we've gotten a couple of responses from listeners about the Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell autobiographies, but not all that many. So if you want to get on the special episode, the book club episode, which we're recording this Friday, uh, send us your responses, your book reports, or or not, just send us your thoughts and I mean, uh, make sure you earmark the email to the podcast that it's for the book club. And uh, we'll be reading some of those on the air. And the people who send us the two best, as I've said now a couple times, going to get autographed Chuck Liddell bobbleheads in the mail from MMABobblehead.com and the Co-Main Event Podcast. Autographed by Chuck Liddell? Or did you autograph them? No, they're, <laughs> they are autographed by Chuck Liddell. Okay. I don't know that uh, if they were autographed by us that that would be a, a big prize. Yeah, that's like plus. One of those... It's weird to autograph another man's bobblehead, don't you think? <laughs> that is one of those like threat prizes. Like we're still, we are still going to send out that uh, scorched earth DVD yeah. starring Gene and Crano. The next person that pisses us off that's super right. bad is getting scorched earth that's in the right. mail. You know what? You know what I can see happening? Somebody's going to complain about some aspect of the live stream because that's what people do with live streams, and then they're going to feel all high and mighty till they go check the mail one day, Boom. open it up. Boom! Gina Carano staring you back in the face. Talking about the cloud fall, and then that's when you're like, I done fucked up. The earth isn't going to be the only thing that is scorched Ooh, at that point, because that would be a sweet burn. Nice. We got music this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast today, you can check out more at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Yep. Beats. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one... Holy fucking shit. And around number two, a text I received from friend of the podcast, our guy Smokestack, yesterday, reads as follows, quote, Brock Lesnar has the unique ability to ruin two different sports entertainments. <laughs> Is that true? We'll discourse. And in round number three, will the real Francis Ngannou please stand up? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail to this week comes from Old Glory. Okay. Which I feel is seasonably seasonally appropriate. Yeah, I unlike, like it. Unlike the decorations in my home. I feel like, man, I I really need a nickname that has old in it, that starts with old. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You know? Maybe even old, like just an O-L apostrophe. Yeah. Like the old man, Frankie Edgar. See, I want it to be like old... You want to be like old Bucking Ironside? horse or something. Yeah, something like that. 
We'll work on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll workshop it a little bit. Okay. Old Glory writes, was the Tavares fight the coming out party for Israel Adesanya that the UFC wanted it to be? Seemed that way to me. Ben, what do you make? See, we talked about this fight in advance uh, on our streaming event last week. On the Brunch of Champions. Brunch of Champions. That's right. And you know what? And we, when we talked about it, we were like, man, this could go badly. This yeah. could be Brad Tavares clinching you up against the cage for five rounds, which thank God it wasn't that because... That event was a slog to get through, especially with the two tough finale events and the uh, the second finale, which served as the co-main event. That was not a great fight. Just got weird. And so it was like, man, you're six hours deep into this event by the time Israel Adesanya gets out there. And thank God that man found a way to put on a show. Yeah, it was kind of like he put it right in our faces. Yeah. Because not only do we say this feels like Brad Tavares' fight to lose, but also I think... Uh, we may have proffered that the longer the fight goes on, it could have uh, uh, it could have benefited Tavares, who you know, if he went out there and used his wrestling, might be able to grind uh, Adesanya down and and like you know take him into deep water. Uh, this one comes out fifty forty five on two of the judges' scorecards, forty six forty nine or forty nine forty six the other way uh, on that last judge's scorecard. So uh, nearly a a a shutout. I don't see which round Brad Tavares won. And also, you could see him kind of taking Tavares out of it early on. Credit to Tavares for making it the distance in that fight because there were some rough moments for him. If he's not such a tough dude, that fight gets finished in, you know, second or third round. Especially, I don't know if you saw that picture, that still image that the Las Vegas Review Journal got of uh, Israel Adesanya landing that elbow and you can see the the pieces that used to be the skin above Brad Tavares' eye, and now they're just floating in the night sky. And, man, a lot of people are done after that. A lot of people are done after that, where he lands that body kick and, and drops him and crumples him up. But uh, I was legitimately, legitimately impressed by this performance from Israel Adesanya, because that's a real guy. Brad Tavares is a real guy who usually the only people who beat Brad Tavares are really good dudes. Uh, and to beat him and to just style on him the entire time, that's that's the point where I think we got to say, all right, Israel Adesanya is a somebody. Yeah. So what do we do with him now? The guy is 3-0 and in the UFC, 14-0 and overall. Uh, I think you're right that this win over Brad Tavares is the one that kind of plants the flag for Israel Adesanya uh, as a legitimate contender at 185 pounds because, you know, those previous opponents, Rob Wilkinson and uh, uh, Marvin Vittori, not necessarily big-time known names at 185 pounds. Brad Tavares, as we said on the streaming event, is a dude who's been around for a long time, a guy that we all recognize as a tough, tough fighter who can be a problem for anyone in the division. Adesanya beats him by unanimous, unanimous decision. Put your Sean Shelby shoes on. Okay. What do you do with Israel Adesanya moving forward? They're loafers, by the way. I think we all know that Sean Shelby shoes are I was just going to say that, that was, it was kind of like a tongue twister. Put your Sean Shelby shoes on. Yeah. Uh, you know, he said after the fight that he was looking at the winner of Uriah Hall and Paulo Costa, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you saw Paulo Costa's response. He did the Mariah Carey, I don't know her, in response to Israel Adesanya. Yeah, well, he said he didn't know Adesanya and then called out Chris Weidman. Right. Which is some fourth-dimensional chess from Paulo Costa. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, and it sounded like from what Dana White said that they're not looking to make Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa. Yeah, well, why would you? Unless you're the UFC and you have this weird habit of knocking off 
of matching up your big time contenders so that one of them loses all of his momentum. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, honestly, I don't know what you do with the guy next, but it seems like you've got to give him somebody where at least like there's a stylistic new test to it because you got to go up from Brad Tavares, but you don't want to go so up in the way, like you said, that where you're just knocking off contenders uh, by throwing them against each other too soon. So I don't know. I don't know. I'll be interested. I, and I got to say, look, we questioned the matchmaking decision here against Brad Tavares, and it, it, it all worked out okay. So we got to say we were wrong on that one. Uh, we're jumping around a little bit on the list of listener mail here, but since we just talked about Paulo Costa, I'm going to go down and read this one from Jim Jennings. So I'm guessing that a certain Paulo Costa is a full-time member of Team Dundasso now with his multiple finger poke warnings and double low blow stoppages in his fight with Uriah Hall. Welcome to the team, Big Paul. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, he packed a lot of fouls into into uh, one round, seven minutes and thirty eight seconds. Yeah, no, right? he, and he did them all in the first round. Did them so. all in the first. I mean, he just front kicks him in the balls, then he punches him in the balls later on, which is a you don't see that that often. Underutilized technique. <laughs> yeah. Also gets warned for eye pokes, uh, and not punished for any of it. By the way gets warned for two different fouls on separate occasions, all in one round, no punishment whatsoever, except for the referee uh, looking at him and admonishing him by saying, no more. Right. Had to call in for the interpreter just so he could talk to Paulo Costa. Did you see who the interpreter was? Who was it? Wally Dismail. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, his manager. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, like, I hope that that message is getting through since the yeah, so-called yeah. interpreter is on Paulo Costa's team. Well, yeah, and if you filter a message, any message through Wally Ishmael, like it, it, the ref says, "Tell him no more." Wally Ishmael probably says, "You got a couple more. <laughs> you got one or <laughs> I know two how more." This works. He's, he's not that mad yet. Um, but you know what? He was really going to work with those body shots. Got oh, him a little yeah, bit below the belt. But that guy, does that guy know how to throw a, a non-power punch? Does he know how to throw a jet? Like, what's it like sparring with that guy? You're like, hey, Paulo, we're going to go light today, right? And he, is he just like, I don't even understand the words you just said. Everything that guy throws is like he is absolutely trying to murder you. Well, that and that's sort of the story of this fight, right? Because in, through much of round one, Uriah Hall was kind of beating Paulo Costa the punch, using his speed. Uh, he wasn't really sitting down on any punches. He was kind of flicking jabs out there. Yeah, he's just uh, keeping that jab in his Yeah, face. to a lot of success, you know, firing off some some kicks. Uriah Hall uh, is pretty fast, especially for being a big middleweight who who cuts a lot of weight to make that that limit. And he was having success with it. Uh, and then, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what happened aside from the fact that the sort of size and strength of Paulo Costa ended up winning the day. Maybe because, you know, especially in mixed martial arts, Paulo Costa has that kind of power where uh, if he catches you a couple times, it's going to change the whole fight. Whereas Uriah Hall is, is working a much, he's working a longer con, let's just say, in that fight where the speed and sort of uh, uh, attrition of, of his blows is, would eventually, you know, wear Paulo Costa out. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing about a guy, fighting a guy that looks that good getting off the bus, as I guess you're hoping that he'll run out of gas if you can get him long enough uh, into the fight. But so far, I haven't seen that happen. I don't think anybody in the UFC has made it out of the second round with the guy. Yeah, he's 4-0 now. Obviously, this win over Uriah Hall, before this, he, he kind of got fed Johnny Hendricks. Uh, and before that, uh, Gareth McClellan and Olamwale Bambusa, the Bang Bus. The Bang Bus, yeah. Have you seen Paulo Costa's Wikipedia picture? <laughs> no, I have not. He looks like the guy everyone hates at your high school. <laughs> I can I can believe. Yeah, no, he really does. Man. 
Yeah, he is straight out of the he's the the muscle in the gang of like hateable uh teen uh boys on the soccer team or something. Yeah, well, it helps that he's wearing a soccer jersey. He is wearing a soccer jersey. Next question this week comes to us from Davis O'Neill. He says, "What are we thinking about Paul Felder and Mike Perry after their fight at UFC 226? Did per- Perry gain a lot uh, winning the split decision, and did Felder make a significant move forward by stepping up and taking the fight on short notice? Discourse. Now, Ben, uh, Paul Felder and Mike Perry had themselves a nice little slugfest. You know what I was thinking about this fight? Half, it's this is like the uh, since there's there's uh, five fights here on the UFC 226 pay-per-view card, Mike Perry and Paul Felder was the turn at the halfway point. Uh, the thing I would say about this one, everybody got to do their stuff. Everybody got to do their stuff indeed. And I was going to float out there, like this seemed like one of those fights where it was good for both guys. Like even though Paul Felder comes out on the wrong end of the split decision, he takes the fight on short notice. He moves up from lightweight to welterweight to fight Mike Perry. Uh, he doesn't look outclassed. He broke his damn arm. Yeah. During the fight. Early on in the fight. Did he break it on one of those spinning attacks where Joe Rogan was like, man, you could break your arm doing that? Mm -hmm. I mean, Paige Van Zandt broke her arm the same way, right? So, yeah, there is something to consider there. Uh, But was still out there throwing it. Uh, Both guys really proved what we already knew or suspected about their toughness. Uh, that, That left hook that Mike Perry lands, it's amazing because it's like, it seems like it cuts open Paul Felder around his eye and also raises a raises a huge lump on his forehead with one punch. It's like you're looking at him. They show the replay, and it's like you're looking at him. He's relatively fine. The punch lands. He's a fucking mess. Yeah. The instant afterwards. Uh, and yet still, you know, fights through that all. When they're looking at the cut, you can tell that he really wants to keep going. Mike Perry has to uh, dig deep through some stuff later in the fight. But, yeah, I, I, I agree that it's a good thing for both guys, but I do kind of feel for Paul Felder here when you sit back and you think about what actually happened, where, like, he lost an opponent, he didn't want to end up doing all that training for nothing, no payday at the end, so he goes up a weight class on shorter notice than he thought, goes and fights Mike Perry, a tough fight, gets kind of his whole shit broke, in a way, in part literally, and then, you know, now his winning streak is over, and it's like, okay... That's the the risk that you took, but you ha- kind of had to take it just right. to make sure you got paid. Well, yeah, uh, and I I didn't necessarily have this at the top of my mind until this fight happened that this was Paul Felder's first fight since December of 2017. Right. So because... he's been on the shelf uh, for the entire first half of this year uh, without a fight paycheck. Like we assume he's getting paid for when he goes and works for Fox, but uh, that could put the squeezing on somebody if you had to go seven months without a, without a damn paycheck. Uh, and the thing that really makes you feel like, uh, despite the fact that this was a pretty good showing for him at welterweight, is whether or not that broken arm turns out to be a big deal. Yeah. Like, if he has to spend, you know, several months now on the shelf because of that broken arm, maybe this wasn't the greatest deal in the world for Paul Felder, uh, even though I don't think that he really hurt his stock in the UFC, maybe even improved it with a performance like this. Uh, it was also good for Mike Perry, though. Don't you think that, uh, you know, he was coming off two straight losses, he comes into this fight. This is his first fight after uh, breaking camp down there in, in Florida and going out to the Jackson Winklejohn uh, fight camp in in uh, New Mexico and looked better. Yeah, and he d- and he looked like uh, I believe they said on the broadcast looked more like the Mike Perry that originally showed up in the UFC, uh, maybe before he had totally fallen in love with the Mike Perry persona and what Mike Perry was supposed yeah. to do out there in a fight. And now he's out there a little bit more patient, looking like he has a game plan. Uh, and frankly, even though he's fighting a uh, glorified lightweight, looked a lot more effective. Uh, do you think if you go to Jackson Winklejohns and you are like 
Me personally, you if you refuse to do the the knee, the oblique kick oh, to the knee. Do yeah. they kick you out? Yeah, they tell you to go home. It's like a, uh, it's like a uh, in some introductory hazing. It's like the first thing you walk in, you're like, hey, I'd love to train with you guys, and they're like, all right, kick me in the knee, asshole. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Oblique kick. That's that is the the foundation that we build everything around. <laughs> that the everybody goes. Like it goes there and immediately right? starts the doing that. Yeah, the bell cow of the. Uh, of the Jackson Winkle John Arsenal, we were worried John Jones was going to be a bad influence on uh, Mike Perry. They end up going out and doing a bunch of shots of tequila. Mike Perry comes home kicking people in the knee. Well, yeah, he picked up some stuff. What do you think John Jones picked up from Mike Perry? Well, time for a face tattoo. Well, you know what? It's the face tattoo is not the the life ender it used to be it's not you notice that like remember when mike tyson got the face tattoo and everybody's like well that's it i guess like he's finally got off the deep end now if you, it seems like you can have a face tattoo you can go out in the world well, and be a, a productive member of society not with a face tattoo. i'm it's still possible that the people who choose to get the face tattoos are predisposed to making some bad choices that might affect them in other areas of life but not quite as frowned upon as it was back in our day. It works for pro fighters, but do you think that would be the case for like a CPA? Like if you needed an accountant and you showed up in an office and there were two two desks. Mm-hmm. Let's say one woman has a face tattoo. The other one does not. Which desk are you going for? My first question is, what's tattooed on her face? Is it her nickname? Because if so, that's my accountant. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. need I need an accountant. What if it says numbers? <laughs> okay, totally. See, I, I need an accountant with a little bit of an edge. I need somebody who uh, yeah, is not afraid to get creative. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Arnold Gonzalez. He writes, can we give some time to talk about Dan Hooker? The city kickboxing fighter has emerged as a lightweight prospect from the obscurity of his tenure as a featherweight in which he said he acted like a zombie and could not think inside the octagon. Then in parentheses, fulfilling his zombie duties. As with DC, without the brutal weight cut, Hooker has shown an increase in power and that he is not the one to mess around. Calling for a top 10 guy, looking for the well-being of other fighters that might get smashed by his hand. Uh, let's talk about the really angry young man known as Dan Hooker. This is a good performance from him, too, against Gilbert Burns. Uh, and I am totally in for this gimmick. This, uh, you need to give me a higher-ranked opponent because otherwise... It's kind of irresponsible on your part. Okay, yeah, I like, like that. He said afterwards that he felt like the UFC was probably violating some health and safety codes by giving him fighters who are not on his level. That's an awesome way to do it. I can't believe no one has thought of this before because I'm I'm totally into that. Uh, four in a row now for Dan Hooker and Gilbert Burns. Uh, even though his UFC record is not sterling, like he's no joke. Gilbert Burns, especially in terms of his jujitsu, uh, is a really really good fighter. And so this is a, a a good win for Dan Hooker. And again, we talk about this lightweight division all the time being the shark tank of the UFC, uh, the most competitive division in the sport. You got to do something to try to get noticed. Uh, you're right. I don't hate it from Dan Hooker. Right. I mean, you mentioned Gilbert Burns having a solid record. First time he's ever been finished. Uh, other losses were decisions. He fought He fought a guy with Magomed in his name okay. and still uh, went the distance. No shame in getting decisioned by a Magomed. Yeah, we've all been there. Um, but then against Dan Hooker lasts about two and a half minutes. And those were just clean, precision punches, too. You know, it was everything he was landing, uh, was the timing on it was just great. Like the first knockdown, he just catches him coming forward, throwing a punch at just the right moment, puts a, a right hand on his chin, and down he goes. Uh, yeah, I mean... I really like everything that he brought to the table, just like both in terms of his actual fight, his, his comments and stuff afterwards. Uh, 
you look at that guy and you think like, all right, we can we can do some business with Dan Hooker. But you're right that it is such a, a crowded division right now that it's tough to know, you know what do you do with anybody right now. Yeah. You know, where are you even if you're Dan Hooker, are you even thinking to yourself, all right, here's what I need to do to make a run at the title, or are you just thinking like, all right. The title situation could be vastly different in six months than it is now. I just need a, an interesting fight on a good fight card where people are actually going to see me. Like, get me off fight pass, in other words. Right. Well, yeah, and, like, unfortunately for people that are from, like, Australia or New Zealand, where, where Dan Hooker is from, I think we've talked about this before, you run the risk of becoming a dude that they just call when they're going down there. Yeah. Right? That the UFC is going to call you when they go to Auckland. Yeah, like, they have, uh, by now, uh, like, an, an Asian roster of the guys where it's like, okay, if we're in Singapore, or we're in Macau, or something like that, these are the guys that get the, the call to fight. Otherwise, they don't. Uh, and we got, you know, a Europe lineup. Alir Latifi seems to be on that one these days. Yeah, so you don't want to end up being one of those guys. But right now, I mean, after I saw that, I was just like, for me... We always talk about the struggle of standing out in the UFC, and you're like, okay, so you're the guy who last time uh, knocked out Jim Miller and then very respectfully called out Paul Felder to his face. Now this time you're the guy who knocks out Gilbert Burns and then says that it's a violation of health and safety standards to put you in there with fighters of this caliber. That's something that as a, as a fan I'm watching, I'm trying to keep all these guys straight. I can cling to that. I'm going to remember this guy next time. So yeah, you, you can really do something there. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Curtis Bouchard. He just asks, is Anthony Pettis back? And back is in quotation marks, yeah. perhaps, uh, alerting us that maybe there's some irony at work here. And frankly, John Anik did announce that, that Anthony Pettis was back after he finished Michael Chiesa via second round, uh, triangle arm bar. Are you giving this to stiff arm? This is, you, this uh, is a visual thing for our, our people following on stream, but that is me. Pumping the brakes. Okay, you're doing it with your hand. So, well, like, if I did it with my feet, nobody would be able to see it. That's true. I'm just saying maybe it's... Pump the brakes. Okay, let me give you the good stuff here before okay. we pump the brakes, which I agree with you that we probably should do. But this is a big win for Anthony Pettis, a good win over a big, tough, lightweight Michael Chiesa, who's now moving up to welterweight, we're led to believe. Not only does he get the stoppage, second round uh, armbar here... Uh, but you see a little bit of the old school Showtime flash here. A little you bit do. of the swagger is back for pretty Tony Pettis, which above every, above and beyond everything else, uh, was good. F like in my opinion, was good to see. Yeah. Cause that's what you need if you're pretty Tony Pettis. Well, yeah. And, you know, not being afraid to go out there and try stuff has kind of been both the, the blessing and the curse for Anthony Pettis. But I, I do agree that when he, when he fights this way, he seems – you can just feel the confidence a little more. He's piecing Michael Chiesa up on the feet. And then, though, when he has him hurt, not afraid to go to his back, try to finish the guillotine. That doesn't work. He goes straight to that triangle. And, you know, that's a good ground fighter who you're getting that triangle on adding the arm bar there at the end. Uh, that – if you think of, like, Anthony Pettis' game is, like, going to be, all right, kicks from odd angles, flashy stuff on the feet, uh, can can hurt you at – kickboxing range, but then there's also a submission threat off his back. Those two things you can build on if you're Anthony Pettis. If you've got those two pieces of your game. Uh, the question that I run into, though, again, is that, like, is he just going to get, you know, wrestle decisioned by some of the guys in this division who are known to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's not a situation where we think Anthony Pettis at 31 years old is, is uh, about to be the champion again, but like, he's an interesting guy to have around. He's an interesting, interesting guy uh, to have in the mix. Clearly. Uh, 
So I, you know, the the 155 pound elite, I think, is better if you have a if you can reasonably include Anthony Pettis among them. It's definitely uh, prettier. It's definitely prettier. It's better dressed. Yeah, it, its eyebrow game goes up a lot when That's he's when he's in the mix. Eyebrow and line beard. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Ivan Burden, who writes, after Saturday's happenings, one question is what happens to the light heavyweight title? Maybe a mini tourney? You have already, you already have Gus at no time, uh, already set up. You can then set up a fight on the other side with possibly the Soldier of Dog and Glover Tashira, uh, winner's face, and there is your new light heavyweight champ, hashtag woodwatch, question mark. This is a good, uh, this is gonna be a good lead into our round one where we'll talk about Daniel Cormier shocking the world and beating Steve Miocic to become the heavyweight champ. Uh, you're going to have to do something with this light heavyweight title. Dan, Dan, Daniel Cormier has already said that he is willing to fight again in between Steve Miocic and a potential, uh, fight with Brock Lesnar. But to me, that's crazy talk. That is absolutely crazy talk. I mean, there's, if you're Dana White, there's no way you are considering that, right? No. Like, there's no way that you are going to think like, hey, uh, you know, what would be a good idea. Let's let's risk it all. Let's roll the dice here, and uh, see if uh, Anthony or see if Daniel Cormier not only emerges without losing, but like unharmed. Yeah. Uh the I mean, you got to at least set up an interim title. As as much as we hate to say that out loud about any UFC weight class, uh, because we believe Daniel Cormier is going to be spoken for for a while. Uh, and you you know what? Uh, Anthony or uh, uh, Alexander Gustafson and uh, uh, No Time might as well just make it for the interim title, as far as I'm concerned, because you you kind of got to do it if you don't think like if you are assuming that what ha- what what happens now is a is is a two fight series for Daniel Cormier against Brock Lesnar and John Jones leading up to the hard and fast retirement date set for Daniel Cormier. Uh, both those fights are going to be at heavyweight. Unless you want him to do both at the same time, which we agree is a bad idea, you got to do something with that 205-pound title. Yeah. That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Uh, the newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, to begin our discussion of Daniel Cormier's UFC 226 victory over Stipe Miocic, I would like, if we may, to spend a moment talking about catharsis. Okay. Wow. Because I think it it, it goes without saying that this victory for Daniel Cormier to win the UFC heavyweight title was an emotional one. And I think it was emotional for a lot of the people watching. And it because it was emotional and because it was a surprise, it took me a little while to realize that what I was feeling perhaps was catharsis because it seems to me like Daniel Cormier's victory over Stipe Miocic was kind of exactly what we needed in this sport 
this year at this time because things have been bad. Things have not been all that great. Uh, the sport itself seems to be in a slump. And so to have this almost universally well-liked figure, Daniel Cormier, uh, totally reverse much of his legacy and like, you know, plant a flag in the sand as the UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, it was cathartic to me because it was, it was positive and it was, it led to this sort of like great outpouring of emotion online. And like, as we watched the fight. Yeah. It's just kind of impossible not to be happy for him in that moment. You know, I went back and watched the fight again this morning um, just to kind of go back and see exactly how he did it. And I found myself, enjoying the post-fight stuff as much as watching the actual fighting. Usually, you know, if I'm just watching to see exactly what happened in the fight again, I'll stop it once it's over. This one, you kind of get swept up in the moment, watching him, watching the, the happiness, uh, the relief and everything on his face as he's walking around there, and just seeing that, that all kind of sink in for him, I found myself wanting to relive that part again, too. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, having a good thing happen in the sport to a nice guy yeah. is kind of a rare... On the biggest stage. Yeah. Like having the having the dominant story now be this really good thing. Yes. I think is exactly what we needed. We should hold on to it because it'll probably last about 15 minutes. Yeah, that's that's probably right. Uh, Daniel Cormier and Steve Miocic squeezed a lot of living into four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> they did. This fight, yeah, the way it started out with uh, Miocic... Being much bigger than Daniel Cormier, obviously, as everyone expected, having having the reach advantage, kind of imposing his will through the first couple of minutes, uh, landing a couple of of punching combinations, and then kind of doing like in uh, like initiating the clinch. So doing the thing that you thought Daniel Cormier would want to do, game plan wise, against Stipe Miocic, and during the times when Stipe had him pressed up against the fence and they were clinched together, I had this feeling like, oh, he's just too big. Like, yeah. the story of this fight is playing out right now in front of my eyes. Miocic is too big. Cormier is not going to be able to keep him off of him. Uh, and, and like, he's, he's eventually going to get TKO'd. He's going to get tagged and knocked down. And then, a couple minutes later, after they separate, Daniel Cormier is doing his weird boxing, like, he's kind of awkward boxing style. And I started to realize, hey, wait a second. Like, Daniel Cormier is actually doing kind of good here. Like, he's landing a bunch of shots. And then, of course... It's like the quintessential MMA stoppage also because you're watching the fight and you start to realize, hey, Daniel Cormier is doing pretty good. Oh, it's over. He knocked him out and like he knocked him down with one shot. Yeah. And then uh, Daniel Cormier was having none of Stipe Miocic recovering from that shot. No. Landed a couple of pinpoint accurate shots right to the jaw on the ground. And that was all she wrote. Yeah. You mentioned that kind of awkward boxing style and it really – you could see how well it worked for his game plan here, which was when you're standing at range with Stipe and he's extending his hands and his fingers, by the way. He does get Stipe Miozic in the eye uh, really cleanly there and has to be warned several times about like, just standing there with his fingers out. But it's a good style for him, especially against somebody like a, a bigger boxer like Stipe Miozic, where... He, he wants to be able to kind of control the hands and get to his hands before he can really start to get the, the combinations off. And when he does start, try to throw in combinations, then he's going to use that to move right into the clinch. But you could see that he, you know, he mentioned afterwards that they noticed Stipe exits the clinch, uh, with his hands down sometimes. And you could see them trying to work that strategy really early on. I mean, early, like in the first minute or so, I believe he lands an uppercut. 
uh, out of the clinch. And it's like he's clinching to shut down the momentum, but he doesn't want to stay clinched very long. He's clinching, uh, looking for an underhook, and then immediately looking to throw and get away. And, you know, he kind of got slowed down at one point when Stipe was able to keep him up against the fence, when Stipe can get that underhook, as Dominic Cruz pointed out, you know, a taller guy gets that underhook on you, especially a tall, strong guy like that. He can kind of lift you off the mat or at least take away your, your leverage. And, uh, you know, he, he got some trouble there, but when he could get him clinched kind of in the middle of the cage or out, out in space, that's where he wanted to be. He wanted, wanted to clinch, stop him a little bit, punch and get out. And that's an, end up how he, he finishes that fight. Plus, Daniel Cormier at heavyweight, Looks to be thrown a little bit harder, does he not? Like he said he's knocking out all his training partners or anything. He, you look at him in there, he looks like a little damn wrecking ball. Yeah. He, he's, he's lithe and athletic still, but he's also powerful. Yeah, he, he certainly looked dangerous, especially after we saw him knock out the UFC heavyweight champion in somewhat dramatic and shocking fashion. You know, the, I saw it floated around like, is this the biggest upset in UFC history? I think you still got to go with Matt Serra and... Uh, George oh, yeah. St. Pierre is the bigger upset. Who's, but I, who's even floating that? But I would Isn't say, like, this is one of the top holy shit moments in UFC history, uh, which is not exactly the same thing, but especially this, the stoppage sequence uh, was a huge holy shit moment in this sport. And I wanted to ask you this, Daniel Cormier now 21-1-1 uh, since the second loss to John Jones got converted to a no contest. Depending on how things play out from here, obviously we don't know what will happen, but like, do you feel that when you mention Daniel, after Daniel Cormier is done and retired and, and hopefully living a happy life with his family, uh, if someone mentions Daniel Cormier or Daniel Cormier's career, is the first thing that you will think his knockout of Stipe Miocic at UFC 226? Because I feel like it is for me, and that is one of the reasons why I feel like this is a complete kind of like destiny altering, legacy altering result for Daniel Cormier. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I feel like right now, if you ask me, what do you think of when you think of Daniel Cormier, the rivalry with John Jones does still loom very large in there. I mean, the, this win, like we said, it kind of replaces that information a little bit in people's minds. I guess it'll also depend on what he does now with the heavyweight title. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about Brock Lesnar and all that kind of stuff later, but, uh, I guess it will depend if we look back on it and feel like the important part of Daniel Cormier's career was when he was the heavyweight champ or the important part was when he and he was the guy to test John Jones. Uh, because I think that the, the redemption storyline that this gives you here after the, the losses to John Jones, I mean, Daniel Cormier even said it like a year ago, he's standing in that cage crying on TV and everybody sees him. And now a year later, uh, he knocks out the most dominant heavyweight champion the UFC has ever had. Like, I think if you think of the, the dominant storyline as being like Daniel Cormier's redemption or the catharsis that comes with it, then you have to think of the John Jones stuff too, because that's what you're coming back from. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and I definitely want to get into that more in round number two. Suffice to say that, like, if the big picture of Daniel Cormier's heavyweight title reign is that it builds a bridge, we think, to a John Jones heavyweight title reign. I'm actually totally fine with that. Yeah, like I'm from, not mad. from a champ, from a like a fan's perspective, and I do want to talk about Miocic for a couple minutes. But first, at the risk of making this all about myself, oh god, here we go. You gonna talk about your t-shirts? I like everything about Daniel Cormier. There's nothing that I don't like about Daniel Cormier. I like the way he fights. I like that. Uh, 
as my colleague uh, Jonathan Snowden said on Twitter today, he's a big boned middleweight and may also be the greatest heavyweight of, of all time, maybe the greatest heavyweight in UFC history. Uh, I like that he dresses like a high school wrestling coach. I like that he's a good broadcaster. I like his sartorial flair when he's on the air. I think he's my favorite MMA fighter of all time. Wow. I think Replacing has, Randy Couture? I think he has replaced Randy Couture as my favorite MMA fighter of all time. And in many ways, Daniel Cormier like accepts the tradition of Randy Couture. He like carries on in the tradition of Randy Couture. But is way more exciting to watch. He's way more exciting. Maybe he's a better person. I don't know. <laughs> okay. You know what else I like about Daniel Cormier? Yeah. That when he go after he beats David Miocic and he goes to the like the cage door to invite his wife in, he says, Where are the kids? Bring the kids in here. I was like, this is this I can relate to all of this. Yeah, I no. can relate despite the fact that you are like a, a, a world-class athlete, Daniel Cormier, I can relate to everything about you right now. No, he's the daddest man on the planet. That's And I, I was commenting yesterday, that video of him leaving the cage, he's got two belts on his shoulders. He's doing uh, an awkward little dance of joy uh, as uh, internet funny guy Kevin Sesho pointed out, like a, a dad on a cruise ship conga line. <laughs> You know, kind of borderline embarrassing to his kids, and he also, but he's like, he's so happy, he's tur- he's dancing, and he's turning around, looking at his son, kind of enjoying this moment, and you're just like, yeah, how do you how do you not root for the guy who just seems like badass dad who goes out there, knocks out the heavyweight champ? I mean, yeah. Let's talk about Stipe for a minute. Also, like a uh, a heck of a stand up guy, I guess you would say. Uh, post the picture from the locker room where he's got the two black eyes, but he's given the thumbs up, just had his six fight win streak snapped, lost the UFC heavyweight title to the light heavyweight champion in, in a huge upset upset. Uh, but see, at least outwardly and publicly seems like he's taking it in stride. Although I'm sure that there were some moments of great sadness for him before we, we took the social media picture. Uh, I don't know if you saw him going back and watching the fight. I got a little bit more of a chance to focus on him in the aftermath. For one thing, he's laying on his back, kind of arguing uh, with uh, is it Mark Godar? I believe Mark Godar yep. is the, the ref. He's like laying on his back, kind of arguing, which is just like, man, you you are arguing from a laying position, yeah, like, prone, that's, yeah, supine, <laughs> that's, arguing from a supine position. That should tell you right there what happened. But then we see when he gets up, he actually gives Mark Godar a little shove, like Mark Godar is trying to help him or something, you know. Uh, or, you know, maybe doing the thing of like, hey, don't try to stand up right away if you've been knocked out. But like he is just not going to be corralled. He gets up, gives him a little shove uh, and then walks over to his corner and looks just like angry and confused. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard not to kind of feel heartbroken for Stipe in that moment because he's just you can see like the realization settling in for him where he's he's looking around. He's seeing Daniel Cormier celebrate and it's just kind of like, well, shit. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know if we want to bounce the majority of this conversation into round number two, but like one of the hardest things for Stipe Miocic here uh, is that he is likely locked out of the heavyweight title picture, at least for a while. If yeah. things advance the way we think they are going to. Yeah. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round uh, number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Jen, if you had told me that the Gokan Saki Khalil Roundtree fight was gonna end in a first round knockout, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we get a chance to talk about this. I would have believed you. Okay, yes. If you had told me that it would be Khalil Roundtree still standing at the end of that, I would have said, "Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me?" Khalil Roundtree goes out there. He Saki'd Saki, man. Yeah, he did. 
first round knockout and then, you know, all the kind of the the air of a man who seemed to realize that the UFC did not call him for this fight because they were dying to be on the Khalil Roundtree business. And he went out there and he proved all you motherfuckers wrong. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Pour a little out for the homie Gokansaki. Not not pouring out any of this Brazilian rainforest. No, you wouldn't want to do that. That's super I'm sure valuable. you paid upwards of 79 cents for that. Yeah. Ben, I'm going to do this for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Because it leads into round number two. But shout out to the man, Rosendo Sanchez, a.k.a. coach at uh, uh, American Kickboxing Academy, also known as the little dude who shoved Brock Lesnar when it looked like Lesnar was going to get into it with Daniel Cormier in the cage following Cormier's win over Miocic. Go get yourself a friend like Rosendo Sanchez. Who (laughs) at least a pair? I mean, I'm sure he's a complete badass, obviously, because he's a coach at AKA. But compared to Brock Lesnar, he looks like he's about five foot one, and he's he makes no bones about it, man. Shit about to pop off. He is going to shove six foot four, two hundred and eighty pound Brock Lesnar like he's ready, like he's ready to get some. He's not gonna stand there and watch you put your hands on his friend. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Big props out to Rosendo Sanchez. Did Brock Lesnar even notice? He did not appear to notice. At that point, it seemed like Brock Lesnar had already uh, decided to just carry on with the, the rest of his gimmick. He was dialed in. Yeah. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, Brock Lesnar, we see him show up cage side, wearing the kind of suit that you wear when there is no shirt that will button around your neck and therefore allow you to wear a tie. Suit pants tucked into his cowboy boots, let's just say right off the top. So we're teasing that Brock Lesnar is present for the fight. He comes over to Joe Rogan and talks about how he wants to do his podcast, which, I mean, yeah, you're not going to tell Brock Lesnar, no, you can't do my podcast. Um, I also... Man, I really hope that they get into some DMT talk on, on that one. Number one, it's the most Brock Lesnar thing of all time to only come in before the main event, right? <laughs> like, he's not going to sit there and watch the rest of UFC 226. No. He's just going to show up for the part where he gets to go in the cage and shove somebody. Mm-hmm. Number two, do you think he really wants to do Joe Rogan's podcast? Because that seems like the opposite of a Brock Lesnar thing want to want to do. I say there is zero chance that Brock Lesnar has ever watched Joe Rogan's podcast. I, he just has heard that it's a thing people like. Has heard people be like, hey, when are you going to be on Joe Rogan's podcast? And Do you think like, that okay. he knows that it's a thing where you like show up and talk for a long <laughs> period of time? Because that doesn't seem like it's Often right in his, his wheelhouse. A range of topics as well. Yeah. I, there's a good chance that maybe the big guy doesn't know what he's getting himself into here. But anyway, he's there. He's cage side. We all can kind of see that where we're going with this whole thing, whoever wins is going to be in some Brock Lesnar talk afterwards. I would like to know what is said in the alternate universe where Stipe Miocic is the guy who wins this fight. Do you think he shoves him? Do you think he goes in there and shoves Stipe Miocic? I don't think Stipe would have quite the sense of humor about it that that Cormier did. No. I also, okay, the way Daniel Cormier in this interview where he pivots to talking about Brock Lesnar, because he goes from... When he says, let me take the mic for a second, Joe Rogan, that's when you know it's on. That's right. And Joe Rogan gives him the mic. And then that's when he he says, tells everybody, listen to DC. (laughs) Which, 
already were in like pro wrestling territory at that point. But it made me wonder, like, definitely we have talked about this beforehand is the, the vibe I'm getting when he, when he says that, when he goes right into like, there's a guy that I know who's a wrestler. And it's just like, okay, so we had this in mind. Did they go to like both locker rooms and be like, hey, heads up. Brock Lesnar's in the crowd. We're trying to get you paid next. If you win this fight, get on the mic and call this man out. Because then it allows them to be like, hey, the guy's asking for the fight. It's not like we're trying to book this fight just because we are, you know, hungry for that sweet, sweet money. It's the, the champion. The champion wants this fight. Like, do you go to both guys in that situation of the UFC and be like, hey, call out Brock Lesnar next? Yeah, but like, do you also think that Miocic would have done that? Like, does Stipe Miocic, given it everything, a different call out? Yeah, given everything we know about him, does he get on the mic in his voice that, especially after a fight, sounds like a blender with a full of lug nuts? <laughs> hey, does he get on the mic and ah, garble garble Brock Lesnar? I can't see it, man. Like, I can't, I can't picture it in my mind brain. It's a little harder to picture. Can we also talk about the irony of Daniel Cormier being a thousand times better at cutting a promo than Brock Lesnar? <laughs> yes. A man whose job largely over the last five years has been in professional wrestling and Daniel Cormier cuts a rad promo and then Brock Lesnar comes out and calls everyone a piece of shit and I'm coming for you, motherfucker. And like he points yes. at him. Yeah. Well, no. And like throws Joe Rogan's hand and the mic into the camera lens, which prompts the, the look from Joe Rogan to be like, what the fuck is your problem, man? <laughs> You know, not yeah, crazy about that podcast part. Podcast introduction or, or invite rescinded yeah. at that point. Yeah. First question on the podcast, have you ever done mushrooms? Second question, what the hell, man? What the hell? Okay, what do we make of the 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 at least a certain segment of the mixed martial arts populace being A, against this, and B, surprised by the antics in the cage between Brock Lesnar and Daniel Cormier? Okay, well, here's the thing that bothered me about the antics. Um, because I get what we're all doing there, but aren't we supposed to do it a little bit more like to where it's not so clear we're all in on it? Where we're not all two, looking around grinning at that's each other? two guys grinning at each other, thinking about all the money they're going to make while Dana White stands there and you can see like the dollar signs in his eyes like he's a goddamn cartoon character. It's It made me feel a little bit too much like, okay, so we're not – we're going to like follow the playbook here on how to sell a big heavyweight fight, but we're not going to follow it well enough to make anybody really believe it. Like the whole thing of like coming in there, pushing each other, uh, yelling at each other. And it's clear we're not really going to do anything. It's clear we're just doing this because this is a thing you do to hype up a fight. We're trying to make some goddamn money here. And in moments like that, and especially when people get, you know, they'll offer their support, but be like, Oh yeah, of course they're going to do that. That makes money. Daniel Cormier wants to make money. Like he said afterwards, hey, if you don't like it, hey, you go ahead and stay broke then. Uh, but it's – here's the point where MMA fans should remind themselves, it's your money. Like before you get too excited about all the money they're going to make and use that to justify absolutely everything that they're doing, rem- remember that it is your money that they are getting. So, you, you know, once you kind of understand – like I, I wrote in the trading shots thing with Danny Downs and I were talking about it, that – the greed is the Rosetta Stone that kind of unlocks everything here. It helps you understand what everybody is doing. Uh, and it's easier to get behind Daniel Cormier and be like, well, hey, yeah, I want to see Daniel Cormier get paid. That yeah. guy deserves it. I wanna, he, he doesn't have much time left, according to him. I want to see him use the heavyweight title, kind of cash out uh, and and live a happy life there. And yet it's also one of these things where we're all supposed to look at this and be like, this is good because it makes money that is mine for somebody who is not me. 
that is that really all it takes for us? To me, the strangest thing, and it, it, it's it's almost like shades of uh, Mayweather McGregor, like the lead up to Mayweather McGregor. To me, the strangest thing is that it's totally going to work. And it yeah. still works at this point. 2018, you know they're going to cut it up into a sweet uh, video vignette, even though as it happened, Lesnar's uh, additions to it were totally cringeworthy. Like, uh, they're going to make it look cool in the highlights. They're going to have a sweet embedded video for it. And despite the fact that we all know that it is largely theater, although, you know, Daniel Cormier and Brock Lesnar could legitimately dislike each other by the end of all of this, everyone's still going to watch it. And it's still going to be a big, big fight. Yeah. And in a way, the money does help get people interested. Like when you can say like, hey, this is a big fight. Uh, Look at the stakes that they're fighting for. I mean, that's been the, you know, that's one of the things that I kept noticing the similarities back when I was doing all that reading about the bare knuckle days was that the, the biggest fights, part of the big deal and the story about the fight would be how much money was at stake. And so that's going to be one of the, the storylines here too. But then also what you're going to deal with is, okay, Daniel Cormier and Brock Lesnar are going to fight. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. Somebody's going to be the heavyweight champion after that. But either way, you're going to lose your heavyweight champion. It seems like if Daniel Cormier sticks to his plan to retire, uh, and even if you try to squeeze, you know, one or two more fights out of him, he's going to be 40 by then. So you're not going to squeeze too many more. Uh, Brock Lesnar, definitely not interested in being a full-time professional right. fighter. Do you, I mean, the money says yes, but like, do you want Brock Lesnar to be your heavyweight champion if you're the UFC? Like, how does, how is that even a workable solution? I mean, I'm sure you would love to have Brock Lesnar stick around as heavyweight champion, but it's not going to happen. Right. I mean, he's 40 himself. It's clearly his interest is not with being like a full-time fighter at this point. Uh, yeah, you're, you're not going to get either one of these guys for very long. So really what we're doing is we're, we're thinking to the next payday and then we're going to have a problem after that. And the, the feeling seems to be just like, well, hey, screw it. I guess we'll figure something out, but we got to get paid now. Right. Well, they've already figured it out though, right? Cause the alley-oop slam dunk here is to have John Jones fight the winner of this fight, no matter who it is. Like, DC against John Jones is a huge fight at heavyweight if it's for the 265 pound title. John Jones against Brock Lesnar for the UFC heavyweight title is probably the biggest UFC fight of all time. So, like, so long as John Jones can free himself from the regulatory company that you control, uh, <laughs> you should be good. Like, you should have a, a plan here moving forward because the, there were all kinds of rumors that they tried to do John Jones against Brock Lesnar before. And it didn't like they couldn't put it together because nobody could stay on the right side of the rules yes. uh, for that one. So like, if you're Daniel Cormier, you should have two fights left: Brock Lesnar, John Jones. Okay, if what we're looking at is basically this is the path to eventually having John Jones probably as the UFC heavyweight champion, and then having a light heavyweight division that has neither John Jones nor Daniel Cormier, then do you renew your campaign to shut it down? With the 205-pound class in the UFC. Uh, you better get some young guys in there. You better get some new faces. Like Alexander Gustafson is, is your assumptive champion without those other guys back. Uh, but, but you got to do something. You really, really got to do something if, if John Jones and Daniel Cormier are not going to be there anymore. Here's my question. Let's say you put an interim title on the winner of, uh, of uh, Gustafson versus No Time. Do you risk it by having John Jones come back and fight those guys for the title? And then he would be the light heavyweight champion fighting the heavyweight champion to try to become the champ champ. You want to do a third champ champ in UFC history. You want to take all those chances just to put some more gold on the poster. It's a big risk. 
That's a big risk. But then you can put like 10 belts on the poster. <laughs> put everybody's belts on there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know about that one. Although, did you notice that we made sure to announce Daniel Cormier as the former Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix champion? Like, just, we want to make sure everybody knows, like, okay, he's bringing his own belt, but also he was a different kind of heavyweight champion before. Uh, that's when we care about your past accomplishments and other organizations. When A, we own those organizations now, and B, it's helpful to sell the thing that we are currently doing. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back. Round number three. Ben, what the hell happened during Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis in the co-main event of UFC 226, where the obvious answer is, not much. Not a damn thing. What happened here? This was the stone-cold lead pipe lock money in the bank slugfest we'd been waiting for our whole lives. See, that's where we went wrong, obviously, is we got too excited about it. Raised expectations. It Somebody w- pissed off the MMA gods again. It seemed like a fight that couldn't possibly fail to deliver a preferably quick and brutal knockout, and yet... We got nothing even close to that. Now, afterwards, Derek Lewis clearly experiencing some some back troubles. You could tell he went back to the corner after the first round, told his coach that he was having trouble with his back, uh, to which his coach replied in classic MMA corner man fashion, and I love you, but you got to fucking fight through that shit, man. Kind of like what uh, Duke Rufus said to Paul Felder about the broken arm, because like, you could tell Paul Felder didn't really want to say it out loud that he had a broken arm because he knew the cameras were on him. And Duke Rivers was just kind of like, I understand. I know you have a broken arm, but we're kind of in the middle of a fist fight here. <laughs> yeah, same thing that, you know, Greg Jackson telling you he doesn't, doesn't want to hear about your pulled groin right now. Uh, but then Francis Ngannou, like, it would seem in retrospect, like, especially, you know, he's obviously not in Derek Lewis's corner, can't hear him say that his back is fucked up. But you can tell by the way he's moving that he's not doing so great. And it seems like he might have been easy pickings at some yeah. point later on in that fight. And Francis Ngannou says later that, his problem was that he carried his fear from the last fight, from the Stipe Miocic fight, into this one. Which is a strange explanation, right? Because I, as I watched this fight, and I believe that they came close to setting a record for, like, least number of strikes landed in a three-round fight or whatever. I, I like how my guy, Olivia Albon Mercier, was quick to point out that he holds the record for the least strikes landed and in, in still winning a fight, uh, still finishing a fight. It's three, by the way. Okay, yeah, that's actually higher than I expected. Uh, Francis Ngannou, I, th- I, w- I thought we were doing with dealing with an injury here or something, just because like Francis Ngannou seemed so listless. He seemed uh, like he didn't want to engage really. Uh, he wasn't throwing a lot. Maybe it's an injury of the mind. Yeah, and of then the he re- psyche. then he releases this statement following the fight, saying that he brought his fear of the, from the Stipe Miocic fight into this fight, which I thought was was strange. Although I guess you got to take the guy's explanation at face value because that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you would make up if it wasn't true but like surprising because it's not like he got like knocked out super bad by Steve Miocic they, they they went the damn distance right but he got exhausted against right. Steve Miocic and then had to keep fighting anyway and that, I mean I can I kind of get that like there is a certain terror that comes with being exhausted in a fist fight and realizing like okay you still got to Get in there. You still got to get up off the stool each round and go out there and and take your licking. 
And it's a terrifying feeling to feel like you're kind of helpless and you're too tired to fight back or to do anything. And so I can see maybe that he felt like he wanted to make sure that didn't happen. What I guess I wonder is if that was your fear, then when you get to the third round, or even if you want to say like the last half of the third round, why aren't you saying to yourself there like, well, hey, we made it. Like right. we're not totally exhausted. We The fight's going to be over soon one way or another. Now I can really let loose and go. And said he seemed like he was just, and he did, he was a little more active in the third round, but it said it seemed like the entire time he was trying to fight from so far out and trying, like, not to engage. I don't know if that was all just pacing himself or what, um, but at least he got the message that uh, nobody was into this. He, he apologized to basically everybody who could have possibly seen the fight, like fans, coaches, family, everybody. Um and, I mean, his response saying, like, hey, there's nothing really I can do now except go back out there the next time and, you know, earn earn people's respect back. Yeah. So you think that it, that it wasn't just that he took a, a whipping from Steve Miocic. You think that the primary fear that he's talking about in his statement is the fear of gassing out. Like, he wanted that... to pace himself because he really paced himself in <laughs> yes. this one. Just paced himself all the way to the end. Maybe, maybe he had a, a treadmill session after the, uh, the fight that he wanted to be, be somewhat fresh for. Maybe that was it. I, I mean, the other explanation, the one that Dana White offered. Right. I wanted to ask you about the Dana White comments. First of all, leave it to Dana White to just, especially when you're staring at a situation where you have a 39-year-old heavyweight champion who's going to fight a 40-year-old former heavyweight champion next. Uh, you're probably going to look at a situation where one way or another you might be without a heavyweight champion somewhat soon. You got a young talent in the division. He had one bad showing, the only bad showing he's had since he's been uh, with your company, really. Uh, and then you want to go out there to the press conference and just absolutely fucking bury him. Yeah, and you would think, like, if you're, if you're going to end up with, like, Brock Lesnar, Daniel Cormier, or John Jones as your heavyweight champ moving forward circa 2019, uh... You want to have Francis Ngannou around. You want to have him, his image rehabilitated by that point, because I would think that he would be, despite like this performance, despite his loss to Miocic, you would think that you would want him as your number one contender, because uh, even even in the wake of this dreadful fight against Derek Lewis, if you told me, what do you think about John Jones versus Francis Ngannou? I'd be like, where do I buy a ticket? Right? Hashtag yeah. would watch. So yeah, it is weird, but also, I mean, surprising, but but also unsurprising since... We know how the president of the UFC operates at this point, and that is he's not going to hesitate to throw absolutely anyone under the bus. Yeah. Because that's how he feels in the moment. He he said that the comment that people, other people working for the UFC had had run-ins with Francis Ngannou's ego. He had had run and he attributed the whole, like, flying back to France during a training camp for Stipe Miocic. He attributes all that to ego. Uh, it also seems a little bit, like, kind of classically UFC, like, hey, we were building this guy up. We wanted you to think that he was a superstar and that he was going to be like this this huge figure. Um, but once he started to think of himself that way, then we got annoyed. Like yeah. that is some some super UFC shit. Right. I will say that the two things that I thought were somewhat troublesome about Francis Ngannou when I went to Las Vegas to do that story about him for Bleach Report were, were number one, that he clearly, like, his lifelong ambition was to be a boxer, that he didn't 
like even now he like he's a really good MMA fighter but I felt like if someone knocked on his door and was like hey man I'll give you a bunch of money to come be a boxer do you want to do that instead that he would say yes if well, so he, would most MMA fighters right like if he could if he could make it work like I'm like that's his his true love I think his boxing so like I could see a guy like that getting beat by Steve Miocic and then starting to think like maybe this MMA thing wasn't as fun as you thought it was while you were running off 12 straight wins or whatever it was uh the other thing that I thought was strange was that his primary or head coach, uh, Fernand Lopez, still lives in Paris. So uh, Nganu lives in Las Vegas and trains every day at the UFC Performance Center with what I gathered was kind of a revolving door of coaches and training partners. At least for the Alistair Overeem fight, which was when I went to cover him, Fernand Lopez still lived in France. So they didn't do the camp together, like, in the same room. They would, like, talk on Skype and stuff, but... Lopez didn't come in until like two weeks before the fight, and then they put like the finishing touches on the game plan. So I actually don't think it's weird at all for Francis Ngannou to go back to Paris while he's, you know, in the middle of a fight camp. And I also wonder, like, is he is training at the UFC Performance Center like the best thing for him? If you're if you're like the guy that you are most comfortable with and the guy that knows you the best isn't going to be there. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you had some insights into his ego. Did you get any? I mean, like when I talk to the guy, like, did he ever declare himself to be a god? You can't act like you know these people if you are just a reporter, because we don't really know anybody in this sport uh, all that well. But like, I found the man to be super ego free. Like when I went to his house and and you know hung out with him and talked to him for a while, like he's been through so much uh, drudgery in his life like working in the sand mines of Cameroon and stuff like that. And basically like emigrating to France as a homeless person who had no clue what to do besides go to boxing gyms and say, you wanted to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Like uh, I didn't get the sense that he had, I mean, he's a professional fighter. So like he has some ego, but like, I didn't get the impression that he was arrogant in any, by any stretch of the imagination. I would have said the opposite thing. Uh, Did he ever call you a peasant? Well, yeah, all the time. Okay. Every, t- every time he addressed me, oh, he would say, got peasant, yeah. peasant, get me a bottle of body armor. <laughs> you ever say, I am better than you? Oh, yeah, every time. Peasant who I am better than. Yeah. No, man, like he couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been more accommodating. He couldn't have been more down to earth. He couldn't have been uh, more relatable as far as I was concerned. So, like, I'm actually super surprised that someone would say that his ego got in the way, aside from the fact that you're dealing with a guy who's like, Six foot four, two hundred and seventy pounds, looks like an Adonis getting off the bus, uh, and is a high level athlete. Like that person is going to have an ego. All of that, all of those people are going to have egos. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, the guy who can come out after that fight and be like, "That was terrible. I'm sorry," and it was a result of my fear. That does not strike me as somebody. Who right. That's not an egotist. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially the way heavyweight is. If Francis Ngannou goes out there. And and knocks out somebody, you know, just some no-name heavyweight schlub in his next fight. Everybody's right back on the Francis Ngannou train. Yeah, he's back at that point, which is, I think, probably what you want to do, right? Get him somebody that we know, but somebody that he's probably going to win. And then you got him set back up to be your number one contender whenever the whenever the carousel comes around again. Also, uh, I did a, a story on this after because everybody's saying, hey, you know, that was the worst heavyweight fight that we've seen. And then when you start digging through the archives to ask yourself, was that really the worst heavyweight fight? Man, there's there's a lot of contenders for that crown. Yeah, and I think you would have to say worst in the modern era, right? Because uh, I remember when Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn went to Detroit and the Michigan like State Athletic Commission tried to tell them right before the fight that they weren't allowed to punch each other 
Like weren't allowed to punch with a closed <laughs> yeah. fist because this was back in the like cock, human cockfighting days of MMA. And those dudes basically like just circled each other for 30 minutes and threw nary a strike throughout the whole thing. I don't know. I mean, you want to go watch five rounds of Arlovsky Sylvia three and then come back and talk to me. Or, you know, you want to watch one, like Frank Mir has at least like three entries in the potential worst heavyweight fight in UFC history. Well, then there was Kevin Jordan and Gabriel Gonzaga, yep. which is saved by the Superman punch knockout at in the, the end. last 30 seconds. But up leading up to that, it was awful. Yeah, no, I actually went back and watched some of that uh, while writing this thing. And you can just, you can feel Joe Rogan just sighing on, uh, on the microphone there. It, he's, he runs out of things to possibly say about it. And it's just like looking at his watch. You're glutton for punishment, man. Going back, watching those fights. I know. I know. Did you like at least set up a timer so you could keep track of how much you were getting paid? <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that one. Yeah, I don't think that's how it works anyway. All right, well, you want to do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. All right, Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff this week? Chad, I'm just saying, have you seen the video of your guy Chuck Liddell hitting pads? I have not. But this could be this. I mean, this is good research for Friday's streaming. Event. Yeah, a, a video has emerged. Chuck Liddell ramping it back up and training. Uh, out there hitting some pads and granted, Hey, it's just training in the gym. You know, you're, you got some time to work up to the fight. It's been a while, but especially for the streamer, see the space I'm making. Yeah. This is where being on the live stream really helps. Cause you are making a grimace, like a scared I, grimace. I don't know. I don't know about this. Well, we need, we need to say, see some comparison footage of Tito Ortiz hitting pads before we can say anything definitively. Well, Definitively, what we may be able to see, say is that uh, this is not going to be the fastest fight you've ever seen. Okay. All right. There we go. Not going to break any land speed records. You will not have any trouble tracking the punches in this one. Well, Ben, earlier in the show, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me going out to the uh, AKA coach who shoved Brock Lesnar, the rare positive Are You Fucking Kidding Me. This week, I'm just saying... You know who didn't shove Brock Lesnar? Who looked like he wasn't going to shove Brock Lesnar? Who looked like he couldn't be bothered to care about shoving Brock Lesnar in the cage after Brock Lesnar just put his hands on his teammate? The kid Luke Rockhold. <laughs> well, Out okay. here, dressed like a sailor from the 1940s, looking like he just hopped off the boat with Gatsby. <laughs> I'm just saying, Luke Rockhold not jumping out of his loafers to come to the defense of Daniel Cormier. Well, obvious, look at him. I mean, you don't want to... Well, you, you don't want to get anything out of place. You don't want to risk ripping your J. Crew sweater. He's out there in a pair of white slacks, man. You know the the high-risk maneuver it is to go out to a UFC event in a pair of white slacks? The, the stain potential there is off the charts. And you want him to go get mixed up in a melee with Brock Lesnar? Well, how get about some this? Jack Link's beef jerky on his white slacks? That's mm never coming out. If I'm Luke Rockhold and I'm in the hotel room getting my white slacks on, I'm doing some moves in front of the mirror thinking, <laughs> okay, let's say just by way of example that I have to do a flying kick to the jaw of Brock Lesnar <laughs> later on after the main event in my white slacks. I don't want to rip the crotch out of these things. I want it to be a highlight reel moment that will live on in infamy in the history of the UFC. Do you think when the, the AKA guys got back and, and looked at the footage that, you know, everybody's seeing what happened there, we're, we're enjoying our moment, we see Brock Lesnar come in, we see your dude run up and, and give him a shove when he uh, puts his hands on Daniel Cormier, 
and then we see Luke Rockhold in the back looking like he just came from the fucking yacht club. Do you think that every eye in the room slowly turns toward Luke? Like everybody going, where were you, man? And he's just talking on his phone. He doesn't even realize <laughs> it. That's what I imagine anyway. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about the stuff that happened at this UFC Fight Night event over in Boise. UFC Fight Night 133, where the main event is Junior Dos Santos against Blagoj Ivanov. Iv- Ivanov. Nailed it. Ivanov? Is that what we're doing? Yep. Blagoj Ivanov. Guy who beat Fedor in Samba. Okay, all that right. That guy. Cool. You know him. Yeah, that's going to be uh, at the CenturyLink Arena down there in Boise. Granddaddy of them all. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, you know the thing I was thinking about having the nickname with old in it? Is uh-huh. that that's a nickname you can grow into. Old it's, sport. It's like, very old sport. That's not bad. It's the opposite of like the California kid kind of nickname. Yeah. Where like it sounds cool when you're like 20, but then when you're 35, people are looking at you going like, dude, you're not, you're not Wonder Boy anymore. You know, this one, the old nickname, the more time goes by, the more fitting. And a lot of shelf life. Yeah. I'm just saying, oh my God, Luke Rockhold with a